Good morning, and the conversation begins here on 94 WIPL Sports Radio. My name's Peter Solomon, and it's going to be a decent WIP day today. No matter where you go, though, take 94 WIP with you. Always good conversation. Before we begin this morning's conversation, I need to take note of the passing of John McCain, a remarkable senator, what he said he did, what he believed in he fought for. He fought for an America that he thought would be just for everybody, not just for a few. He was a brave man. He was a hero. He loved his family, his children. He loved this country. He will be sorely missed. Rest in peace, John McCain. And when we come back in just a bit, we're going to be talking with author Brian Adams. He's got a new book, Obama, An Oral History, 2009 to 2017. All this and more when we come back here on 94 WIP. And we're back. It's conversation. My name's Peter Solomon, 94 WIP. My guest this morning, Brian Adams Abrams. His new book, Obama and Oral History. Good morning, Brian Abrams. Good morning. How are you? I'm fine. Brian, um, a lot of what you've written up till now is histories, oral histories, if you will, of people in the media entertainment field. What made you switch to politics? Oh, well, I should probably start out by explaining to your listeners just the format of the oral history, uh, just in case those aren't completely familiar. Um, so as opposed to your typical book, right, which is in prose form, paragraph by paragraph, and written by an author or a journalist who speaks to sources on background, meaning they're fed information, uh, but they don't necessarily have to attribute it to one person, you know. Johnny says that Obama did this or whatever. Um, in the case of the oral history, I have taken uh, interviews from about 112 people, and I've kind of sliced and diced them into this giant puzzle uh, through 500 pages, and, and, and through their quotes directly, uh, you're reading the story of the last decade. Um, and so, like you mentioned, I, I'm, I've done a lot of stories on pop culture and Hollywood, and uh, this project came up in the spring of 2016. I mean, the politics space just consumed all of media and a lot of people working in media, and um, I, was, I was excited to do it. I was happy to dive in. Okay. Let me start then by asking, how did the evolution of Donald Trump and his campaign and eventually making it to the White House mm. affect your writing and research? Sure. Well, uh, you know, so as I said, the book, I began reporting in the spring of 2016, and this is at a time when everybody in the world assumed Hillary Clinton was going to be the next president. Uh, so, so Donald Trump wasn't on my mind then the way that he's on our minds today or has been for the last two years. Uh, you know, even more so, obviously, than he was, you know, during a really rowdy campaign. Um, you know, but, but the book does, you know, sort of, you see these episodes throughout the book where he does pop up and especially in the White House correspondence dinner in 2011, when Obama famously roasted him, uh, during a time when the birther conspiracies were being promoted by Trump and, and Republicans, uh, and, and a lot of people believe that it was that roast that uh, that sort of, you know, bolstered Trump to, to, to go for uh, the 2016 run. Okay. Um, 
I do a lot of catalog shopping, and in a lot of catalogs, I see this sweatshirt with Barack's face on it and the phrase, you miss me yet? What do you think about that sweatshirt? Um, I'm not crazy about it. I mean, you... I'm 39 years old, and certainly Barack Obama is the most inspirational political figure of my lifetime. I'm sure there are people who are older than me that have said the same thing. Um, But I never intended to put this book together in a way that would be this uh, nostalgic, warm and fuzzy feeling like, oh, remember Obama? Let's go back and live in the years and let's, you know, stick our head in the sand today and not think about all the horrors that we're witnessing now. It just, it, it's just not the way my brain works. It, certainly there are people out there that just want to do that and I don't want to stop them, but, but it, personally, I wanted to use this project to examine uh, not just, you know, accomplishments and how they were made and kind of learn the inside game of, of certain narratives, but, uh, you know, whether it's a health care bill or for, for climate change concerns. But uh, I also wanted to, to take a look at, you know, the shortcomings and the failures. And, and um, you know, I suppose like any reporter would want to do on an objective level, right? Um, I don't know if that answers your question completely, but but I just – I'm not comfortable – being on board with sort of this, you know, disnification, you know what I mean, mm-hmm. turning, for, for any administration for that matter. Okay. Um, how did you get access? Did Barack Obama know you were writing the book? Good question. Uh, well, I imagine he did. He does now. Uh, I imagine at some point he did. Um, so, so this was unauthorized, meaning, you know, the publisher gave me this deal and said, go out and do it. And at the time I had, this is, it's actually really, uh, this is really unique. I don't think publishers do this, but, but I had zero interviews lined up, uh, when the deal was given to me. And so I had to work from the outside in, uh, you know, I started with, uh, you know, junior aides who are no longer, you know, working in government, uh, sort of, you know, not, I don't mean this disparaging, just like the smaller names, you know, the people on the outskirts and, and uh, you sort of build up, you know, this critical mass of people where six, seven months down the line, you know, you have 60 people on the record and you can call the Chicago mayor's office and say, hey, look, you know, Rahm Emanuel's name's been mentioned 29 times so far. Uh, you know, if he's got 10 minutes, let's talk. Uh, I mean, that's the basic strategy. Um, and it was difficult. Yeah. Did you get any resistance from people though, to talk? Well, Oh, sure. I mean, if I, let's see, so if I have like 112 people on the record in the book, and that's, say, you know, people from the White House and Congress, Republicans and Democrats both, you know, government officials in different agencies, uh, campaign strategists, you know, from the Romney campaign, you know, um, there's probably another 112 people at least that closed the door on me that didn't want to talk. Um, And then there were people that said no, and eventually, you know, I twisted their arm enough, and they realized it would be in their interest to participate. Was Michelle one of the people you talked to? Uh, No. I didn't, uh, I actually didn't try to talk to Barack or Michelle Obama. Uh, I was, at one point, you know, the Obama's post-presidency office did reach out to me, um, 
as well as the Obama White House at some point, too. But I never asked for an interview with uh, either of the Obamas. Um, I think on one hand, I just assumed it would never happen. But more than that, I kind of didn't want them in the book. I felt that it would add so much weight to see a quote from the president in there that the reader would just be so distracted by that that it would be even difficult to like take in what the next person in the book is saying, if that makes any sense. Yes, it does. Mm-hmm. You, when you started the book, did you have any preconceived notions about Obama and the presidency? Uh, well, I wasn't. I wasn't as familiar with the story of the presidency uh, at the beginning as I was at the end. I mean, that goes for anything that you do if you spend two years looking into it. And uh, I, I suppose I don't know. If, I don't know if it's fair for me to say that I was. I feel more optimistic about his presidency before I began. Uh, I mean, I think that you know he's uh, he's obviously an intelligent, capable man, and, and as far as you know, the concept of the presidency as an office goes, um, you know, I don't know. Who else better you would want in there at the time? Um, but uh, you, you know, there, there's certainly mistakes made that I'm I'm not I'm not happy with. Mistakes made, honestly, or mistakes made because they were stupid. It's a good question. I didn't. I wasn't able to to cover every single topic. I think that uh, there were honest mistakes. I think the one a lot of people point to, this is the easiest one uh, because it's just talked about so much, but the naivete, or I don't even know if it's naivete, but this idea that, you know, Obama came into office and he was really, uh, he was really set on this idea of trying to bridge the divide and, and, and make bipartisan deals and, and sort of, you know, heal uh, this divided Congress, you know, and, and all this hyper-partisanship across the country. And uh, while he was taking this permanent posture on his side of the table, you know, ready to do business and do what he can and compromise to make the Republicans, you know, sit down and do a handshake deal, whether this is for health care or immigration, you know, take your pick. Uh, the Republicans were never dealing in good faith. They never were going to. If you go to the summer of 2009 and you look at all the months spent in committee over the health care bill, um, at the time, people in the Obama White House and Democrats in the Senate both truly believed that uh, a bipartisan deal could be reached, that three or four Republican senators would come on board and you know, sign this bill uh, for 60 votes to make a stronger health care reform bill. Um, as we see, you know, that didn't happen, and the bill had to be done uh, differently months down the road. But at the time, everyone thought that could be done. And looking back, they know now uh, that that was, that was foolish. That's one example, I mean, without getting into too much. But was it naivete on the part of the administration, or was it the Republican Party, Mitch McConnell in the Senate, Paul Ryan in the House, just couldn't be overcome? Well, I think, I mean, that naivete is not the right word to use. And, and six in the morning, my vocabulary is not at its best. But I would, I would say that 
I, you know, I've spoken to people who, who, you know, on background, you know, sort of explained how, you know, Barack Obama, I mean, he was well aware of what he was up against very early on. I mean, when they're in, you know, when they're in the office by February 2009, when he gets the stimulus bill signed, like there were more than enough signs to show you that Republicans just were not open for business. Um, I do think that it was just Obama's philosophy. Um, and, you know, you can disagree with this, and I might, you know, but it was just his philosophy that you do take this permanent posture of saying, look, we're going to be the adults in the room here. We're going to, you know, we're going to sit down. We're not going to play games. We're going to do business. And sooner or later, the kids on the other side, something will happen where they're going to want to do it too. Um, that he felt he had the, the burden of, you know, having to be the party of responsible governing and being in the White House running all the agencies that he couldn't uh, play, you know, just the silly games. Um, now, whether that was the right strategy or not, I mean, we look back and we we see that let's just let's let's take a different uh, approach and say that Obama and the Democrats had gone ahead and in 2009 said, you know what, we're not doing business with the Republicans. We're just going to ram through every piece of legislation the way we want it every single time, right? Let's say they did that. Um, then today, Republicans could go on TV and rightfully make the claim that it was the Democrats that divided this country. Um, now, we obviously know the truth. Everyone in the country is very aware that the Republicans were the ones who divided the country. Um, I guess the one difference is, had the Democrats done that and had they, quote, divided the country uh, by making these aggressive moves, <laughs> the only difference is Americans would be better off for it. Okay. But if the Democrats were playing the adults in the room... There's an implication there that the Republicans in the room were petulant children. Yes. Yeah, I'd say that's true. Um, I mean, there's an episode in the book, and this has kind of been famously reported on, but, I mean, so much has happened, it's easily forgotten. The night of Barack Obama's first inauguration, January 20, 2009, uh, a group of about 10 or 11 uh, Republicans uh, including Paul Ryan and uh, Pete Sessions and a bunch of, you know, sort of committee heads. Newt Gingrich joined them, you know, the former speaker for the Republicans in the 90s. And uh, they went to the caucus room, this this restaurant in D.C., steakhouse. And, uh, you know, they discussed their plan for, for how to oppose Barack Obama and how to make him a one-term president. And the plan was just to say no to everything. Uh, you know, there were Republicans in the book that claimed that that night wasn't it, that, that, that night has been mythologized and that it's not all true and that it was just a strategy meeting, but uh, there are more people that claim otherwise. Um, and when you have a country that is, uh, you know, I guess the, the expression was, you know, falling off the end of the table, you know, economically, that we were about to dip into a Great Depression, and you have a major political party plotting uh, to not do business with the new president just because he is not one of their own, uh, that puts millions of Americans in harm's way. Uh, yeah, I would call that childish.
Mm-mm-mm. And you're listening to Conversation here on 94 WIP. We're talking with Brian Abrams, author of Obama, an oral history, 2009 to 2017. My name's Peter Solomon. All right. Republicans, though. Did anybody on the Republican side have anything nice to say about Barack Obama? Um, well, again, I, you know, I mean, nice. I think what you, what you mean by that is, you know, were they, uh, were they just in attack mode with me on the phone? I mean, I, I mean, everyone was, for the most part, uh, pretty genuine when they spoke with me. Um, it wasn't like a cable news show where they have to go on and purposefully get in attack mode to get whatever message across needed to happen, you know, for that five seconds. Um, but I, a number of Republicans I spoke with, whether it was Scott Brown, who was the, who was briefly the senator from Massachusetts, he's now Trump's ambassador in New Zealand. Uh, Pete Hoekstra, who was a congressman in Michigan, is now Trump's ambassador in the Netherlands. Stuart Stevens, who was the chief strategist for Mitt Romney's uh, 2012 campaign. Uh, you know, I mean, they were all fascinating discussions. Joe Lieberman, technically an independent who caucused with the Democrats, but, you know, he was a surrogate for John McCain's campaign. I mean, they were all fascinating conversations and, and, and really helped provide a perspective on uh, certain events throughout the presidency, like I'd mentioned health care before or, um, you know, or the economic recovery. Uh, and, and so so that was an important contrast to, to have in a book where, uh, my biggest concern was, you know, creating something that's nothing but fluff and good news. And I wanted to, I wanted to create an honest depiction of how business was done. And, and it was important to get uh, multiple perspectives from that. It's been suggested that one of the impediments to business was Rahm Emanuel. What do you think about that? Uh, an impediment, meaning... Uh, he made it hard. Yeah. Well, that's interesting. I mean, he's a controversial figure in... in, in historically speaking, in that presidency, because on the one hand, he, you know, as chief of staff in the first year and a half, uh, during the time when, you know, the the economy was at its worst, and the presidency had, uh, you know, Democratic majorities in the House and the Senate, he was, on the one hand, this wartime consigliere who was very familiar with uh, the ways that, you know, the House of Representatives operated and the way, and he had, you know, White House experience as well. So he could have been seen as, you know, the sort of bulldog that you needed to ram through legislation at a time that was very hectic because you had this uh, economic recession hanging over you the entire time. And that could just paralyze any other agenda you might have, whether it's um, health care or banking reform or immigration reform, whatever you're attempting. Um, you know, on the other hand, he and a number of figures that were appointed to Obama's cabinet early on did represent this sort of uh, centrist kind of Clintonian 90s playbook. Um, and it didn't necessarily reflect uh, the priorities or the agenda of that of a lot of progressive voters and donors that backed Barack Obama and worked hard to get him elected to office. And I think that's kind of what you're driving at. Well, I remember a news story about um, 
Rahm Emanuel clad only in a towel, getting in some congressman's face with his finger in the congressman's face. Tolerant. Well, he certainly, yeah. I mean, look, as far as his style of doing of doing that, now, now, he, he's not exactly uh, he, he's not exactly known for uh, PG language, and he, yeah, he, there are shades of Lyndon Johnson in him in this sort of way of uh, you know taking making these power moves. I'm not familiar with the towels episode, but you know, I I am familiar with him you know, pointing his finger in people's faces and yelling and screaming. Uh, I, I think that that is far less of a concern uh, to me and probably to the average American than it is what he's yelling in this person's face about, what he's fighting for, what deal is he actually trying to get made. Uh, is he trying to get the best health care plan for everybody? Or is he trying to protect the pharmaceutical companies? Uh, does Washington become such a muddled mess that you end up compromising for so many sides that <laughs> it, you just forget why you're there in the first place? Um, I, I think it's I think it's more important to consider the message and the direction and the agenda than it is uh, the behavior or the civility. Okay, let's talk about a couple other people and how they fit into the story. Um, Valerie Jarrett. People, in case they forgot her, was brought back into the public consciousness thanks to Roseanne Barr. Mm-hmm. Well, Valerie um, Jarrett, a senior advisor to, to Obama, was a mentor to him and to, to Michelle Obama back in Chicago uh, before their political careers began. And or at least on the national stage before their political careers began. Um, You know, I I think people's perception of Valerie, when you, I think when people can think of her coming on The View or, yeah, in this case, you know, what they remember from Roseanne tweeting about her is that she's this really guarded and protective figure of the Obama legacy, and I think that's true. Um... You know, she doesn't really show her cards too much. In the book, I think um, she, I think that's just naturally who she is. But, uh, you know, my, my conversations with her uh, focused on, well, a number of things. But one that really pops out to me was uh, the administration's attempt attempts toward criminal justice reform, whether that's uh, prosecutor, prosecutorial discretion in getting attorneys general to not uh, go for maximum sentencing for nonviolent drug offenders, uh, doing what they can to reform bail. People that don't have money get to stay in jail. People that do have money get to leave jail. That's completely uh, undemocratic. Uh, there's a much larger conversation about that in the book and with police community relations, and, and we, we spent some time on that. All right. Joe Lieberman. <laughs> uh, I love talking to Joe Lieberman. Um, he is – this is a strange reference. I don't know why it keeps popping in my head, but I think of like a Jack Nicholson from The Witches of Eastwick or something. He's this uh, – he's really charming. Um, in the book, I think he is. He's funny, um, and and yet he's also kind of represents 
the sort of evil forces that evil is a strong word, but I'm going to use it uh, that plugged up uh, Obama's health care agenda. Uh, you know, he's he's famously, you know, he, he kind of touted himself as you know, and it, I mean, he did. He wasn't independent, but uh, he always liked to sort of on a performative level, show how bipartisan he was. You know, I mean, if you remember, you know, turn back the clock to the year 2000, and he is Al Gore's running mate in the presidential election against George W. Bush. And then you look in 2008, and he's helping campaign for his friend John McCain and Sarah Palin for the Republican ticket for the presidency. And uh, then, you know, a year later in 2009, he's doing everything he can to water down a health care bill. Um, you know, it's it's he's a great character to have in the book. There's no question about it, because he, he's a key figure in a, in a couple of moments. Um, but as I mentioned before, it, it, it's hard to not like him. <laughs> As obstructionist as he was, though, in some cases? It's, uh, you know, obstructionist is a word that, you know, when we think of that, we think of, again, like the Republican side and how aggressively they just they just closed up shop, right? And they just didn't do anything. I mean, Lieberman, you know, did end up voting for the health care bill. Um, he just sort of put... The Democratic Caucus in a headlock. Uh, he and, and other and a couple other conservative Democratic senators. One in the book, Bill Nelson from Nebraska, who was just adamant about uh, getting any sort of uh, uh, you know provisions on uh, providing funds for abortion services. He was a big anti-abortion guy. Um, you know they, they you know they they definitely worked hard to make the health care bill not what it was supposed to be um and you know i don't know if, i don't know how much you can call that obstructionist as much as you can just calling him a pain but but um i mean at least he was doing business okay and one lest we forget the women in the picture barbara boxer yeah well so interesting you mentioned barbara boxer because senator from california very progressive obviously a uh, you know, a big uh, uh, piece of her platform is for, you know, women's health, women's services, so, uh, you know, abortion services. Um, and so Ben, ben Nelson, uh, who wanted to ensure that this new health care bill would not provide federal funding for abortion services for, say, Medicaid recipients, uh, you know, Barbara Boxer was the one that the Democratic Senate dispatched to sit down with him and, you know, convince him that they would take any provisions out of the bill. It had to come from her, right? Because if if he heard it from the lips of, you know, Ms. Abortion herself, then, uh, then you know, he would sign on. So, yeah, she, she, she kind of came in in the last minute and helped uh, firm up that deal. But was that um, because she believed it was the right thing to do, or was that just to get the bill passed? Well, I mean, I think she she did it because the clock was ticking, and they needed at the time they believed they needed to get these sixty votes, and I 
no, I'm sure she, if you asked her, you know, federal funds should, you know, provide abortion services for people that can't afford it or in tough spots, you know, of course. But, uh, but in the end, I guess, you know, this phrase, the perfect is not the enemy of the good, uh, you know, I, I suppose that rang through hallways or some versions of it, right? Uh, and, and so she, she had to do what she had to do. That, that seemed, you know, that was the attitude at the time. It sounds like um, a lot of what you've talked about was people made a decision, you've got to hold your nose and do what you've got to do. If you, don't, if you think you've got to do smells. Yeah, I mean, I, I mean that's you know that's certainly as far as legislation goes. Like that's kind of that's kind of been the name of the game for for decades and decades. Uh, it's just you know looking back when you have one side that doesn't hold their nose, or I don't know what the I don't know what the metaphor is. If if the Democrats held their nose and you know they did what they got to do or whatever, the other side maybe is holding their nose, but they're not doing anything anyway. <laughs> I mean, like, what are we doing, you know? So, so, I mean, yes, there are people who, you know, now, I mean, I spoke to Senate aides who, you know, who were working then, who, who looking back, agreed that, you know, in the summer of 2009, you know, we should have just passed a Medicare for all single-payer deal and just called it a day, you know. If only, but that's another discussion. Um, what was the biggest victory you think the administration had? It's a good question. I think that, well, I, w- I want to say a couple of things. Uh, when we talk about the biggest victories and we talk about, um, you know, legacy, right? Um, I, I want this book to be, um, I want this book to be able to, to sort of explore all of the narratives that people talk about when they talk about the legacy of Obama. Um, I just want to be sure that it's done in sort of a sober way uh, and that we don't get too caught up in a, in a kind of fantasy version of what the Obama years mean to us uh, because of what we're experiencing now, because how hellish it seems now uh, that we, that we somehow give them a break. Um, But, but, but all of that said, um, you know, I think that the legacy is still being determined, and I also think that it depends on who you ask, right? Like, as much as we want to criticize the health care legislation, you know, ask any of the 20 million people who did get health care who weren't able to access it before uh, and, you know, see what they think was the most important thing that came out of the Obama presidency uh, or ask anyone in the LGBT community you know, how they feel about their civil rights at, um, you know, being advanced during that time. Um, and, you know, they might give you a, a different answer from someone who focuses only on, you know, economic recovery or uh, catalyzing the renewable energies industries, if that makes any sense. Absolutely. It makes a whole lot of sense. Um, the biggest disaster. The biggest disaster? Yes. Well, I mean, I think when the word disaster pops in anyone's brain, like I think people think of death and destruction, and I think people think of foreign policy, and I think we think of how uh, the Middle East 
has only found itself in more crises over time. Um, you know, I, I don't, obviously decisions could have been made differently, but I think, I don't know if a McCain presidency or a Romney presidency would have gotten it any better. That's just me. Um, and, and I, and so I think about, um, I think about the things that could have been done without getting pulled into these bad faith conversations with the Republican Party and getting uh, Democrats to behave in a more centrist manner uh, than they should have in the first place. Um, I wonder if we had been more aggressive in a progressive agenda uh, on the economic side or on the healthcare side and how that would have helped Americans be better off today. Um, the, the one thing, though, while you can, you know, drive yourself crazy trying to figure all this out, is that, you know, we forget that Barack Obama was conservative on a lot of positions uh, before we elected him. I just think that, you know, I mean, he campaigned on this idea of reaching across the aisle, right, in 2007, 2008. And he is an articulate, inspirational figure. Um, you know, I distinctly remember the feeling of wanting to embrace someone who didn't see uh, being intellectual as a, as, as a crutch. You know, uh, we were sick and tired of George Bush. Um, and yet, you know, we did have someone in office ended up who, who had more conservative views on, say, the Fourth Amendment than we thought, or uh, that did side with the banking industry over the borrowers in ways that we didn't expect. Um, so, so, you know, you find yourself wrestling with that, with the realities of who he was versus what, what we expected to happen. You use the phrase Obama legacy. Mm-hmm. Is there a legacy even left? Thank you, Donald Trump. I think so. I think it's, I think it's also, I think it's also too early to see. I mean, if, you know, depending on the mood I'm in and the morning you ask me, yeah, I might have been able to answer, like yesterday I might have told you, oh, it's all gone. But that's, that's silly because all of the, so for instance, all of the uh, climate change and, you know, and EPA rules that we're reading about in headlines every day that seems like they're being reversed, I mean, let's just keep in mind that every time you read about a rule being reversed or attempting to be reversed or whatever the phrase is, undone, you know, by uh, – by Trump's EPA, I mean, keep in mind that that's just essentially a press release. You know, that's just their intentions to do so. Uh, We're going to see who wins the day in court um, when, you know, every rule made by the Obama administration was done uh, with pretty significant casework. Uh, so, So, you know, a lot of that should remain in place. Now, what happens to our relationship with uh, the partners on the uh, in the Iran deal and what happens to the future of healthcare 
you know, I mean, sure, I mean, those things seem to have been pretty torn up. But you also could make the case that one day when a progressive administration gets back in the White House that, you know, Obama's efforts, flawed as they may be with health care, certainly, you know, open the door wide to that discussion and, and are getting us, you know, getting us on the road uh, to getting every American taken care of the way they should be. And it's conversation. My name's Peter Solomon. It's 94 WIP. My guest, Brian Abrams, author of the new book, Obama, an oral history. All right. Um, it gets it gets really complicated, though, because people think of the Obama administration and think of the Trump administration, and they look through an, an emotional set of glasses. And that doesn't help anything, does it? Well, I know I was a little harder earlier when I talk about uh, – you know, trying to brush away, you know, uh, the cosmetics of it all, whether it's Rom in a towel yelling or whether it's, you know, Trump who can't uh, complete, you know, a, a sentence correctly in the English language. Uh, and, you know, you do want someone who, I mean, look, the Obama family is a classy family, right? And 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 you do want someone in that office who, who uh, does sort of represent values that, that, that you want to be proud of um, uh, and that make you feel like a more complete person. And, and, and you know, when you have uh, just sort of a, a spineless grifter holding the Oval Office, uh, you know, what does that say about the rest of our country? What does that say about who we are? Um, I mean, all of that's true. I mean, you know, I look – as much as I despise Ronald Reagan, uh, you know, it is true that he did serve as a role model to a generation of kids, as, uh, you know, someone who who uh, had character and, and, and spoke optimistically of our country and of, of people in this country. Uh, and, and so the fact that that's now long gone from the office – there's no question it has an effect, uh, you know, on, you know, the national stage, on the global stage in ways that we probably haven't even recognized yet. Um, so, you know, character is obviously important, um, but it's also important what you do with that character. <laughs> All right. Um, you write in the book about a very painful, emotional moment for the administration and for the country. That's the massacre at Sandy Hook. Tell me about that. Right. Um, so we're taking us to December 2012. And this is, uh, I want to say, oh, not a month after Obama gets reelected. And it's like a resounding victory, right? Uh, you know, the Latino vote came through for Obama. The middle class vote came through for Obama. They're gearing up uh, now with the wind at their backs for uh, you know, some sort of legislative push. They still have control of the Senate. Uh, you know, things are, I mean, despite having to work with uh, an, obstruct, an obstructionist Republican House of Representatives, uh, you know, there is a feeling that, that things can get done. And then uh, that morning of December 12th was the date, I think, mm -hmm. uh, that, yeah, uh, Nick Shapiro 
who was a White House staffer, uh, get, he worked for John Brennan, who was the counter, at the time was the uh, counterterrorism advisor for Obama. This is before he became CIA director. Uh, Nick, Nick gets a phone call from the FBI, and this is before it gets out in the news about, um, uh, about you know, 20 children and a school teacher in Connecticut getting uh, massacred by this madman. And uh, so he has to run into the Oval Office and interrupt uh, the PDB, the president's daily briefing, this sort of, you know, sit down with his intelligence heads uh, to discuss, you know, whatever's happening around the world that the rest of us aren't aware of. Um, and, and, yeah, he has to interrupt that with a note um, explaining uh, what just went down. And, yeah, that, 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 now that day, I mean, was talked about as, as the worst day in their White House. Um, yeah, that's been on record uh, for years. But yet, um, other than saying all the right words, no movement was made towards simply solving the problem. With gun control? Yes. Yeah. I mean, so you look at that time, and you have, as I mentioned, the uh, Latino vote came through for the Democrats and for Obama uh, because they stood up the DACA program that previous summer. Uh, that made you know that made a lot of constituencies very happy. And so to return the favor, uh, you know, the Democratic Party was going to make a move on a comprehensive immigration reform bill. That was the plan. And so that got started in November, December in the Senate. Uh, and then that was set aside uh, because the White House knew it, after Sandy Hook that it needed to respond to uh, this crisis where you have uh, people able to get their hands on military-grade weapons and with few pieces of red tape in between, you know, allowing them to do it. I mean, you can order one off a damn website for, a, you know, for a sporting goods store. Um, and so, so that became top priority. And, you know, Obama went around the country and, and tried to, to get people to understand that he wasn't trying to, quote, take their guns away, but he was trying to enact common-sense legislation, uh, the kind of legislation that that the majority of Americans do want. Republican and Democrat agree that it needs to be done. That's been polled consistently over the years. Um, but, you know, then as now, the NRA is just essentially a de facto uh, arm of the Republican side of government and does everything in its power to make sure that the needle doesn't move toward a safer America because that gets in the way of the profits of their gun manufacturers. Um, and so I believe that the day that the Senate bill died, and there were Democratic senators that did not vote for this bill that would have closed up some you know, loopholes on Internet sales for guns. It would have had a background check uh, uh, provision in there uh, to make sure that the right people are buying guns. Uh, that bill went down. It didn't get 60 votes. And I remember it was, as one of Obama's speechwriters explained to me, it was one of the two most cynical moments, I think, that he saw in Obama, that Obama felt truly cynical about uh, the gridlock in Washington. Listening to you, I wonder if anybody could have done better than Barack Obama. 
or no one could? I think the same thing all the time. I really do. Um, and, and kind of what I said earlier, I, you know, whatever, whatever my criticisms may be of the administration, I look at the constraints that um, the political climate would have put on any Democratic president at the time. And uh, I look at also our country's uh, system in which we elect uh, federal officials to office. Um, I, you know, the fact that you have North Dakota and South Dakota put together gives you four senators, uh, and they don't even represent – I don't. I think they barely. Both the states together barely represent half the population of the city of Chicago. Uh, you know, you, you look at you look at the ways in which uh, our populace is is represented, and uh, you know, you say to yourself, you know, Obama may have been the best person we could have got. I mean, I do think that sometimes. Yeah, because people were so hopeful when he got elected especially people of color, that things were going to change, that finally that new world was going to come, and it didn't. Well, you know, again, I think um, it's hard to see change when you're in it. Um, And it it does kind of go back to what I said earlier. I mean, as far as how minorities, people of color, feel about the Obama administration, um, you know, you may have, I mean, it, you're right. I mean, you may hear from people that say, I did not feel represented. I think he just became part of the, the machine that has always worked against me. Uh, you know, you may hear others that say, I, you know, I, I have health care now. Or you may hear, you know, others ex- talk about how, you know, oh, it, when it comes to how the scales of justice are tipped against minorities, uh, and that Obama commuted the sentences, I believe, of a thousand uh, prisoners. More sentences, by the way, put together uh, that that were commuted by uh, the three presidents before him. Um, you know, it, it depends on who you ask. I mean, you know, gays and lesbians were not allowed to marry in 2008. Um, there were workplace discrimination laws that did not protect them at the time. Um, you know, we also lived at a time when you had uh, solar and wind energy industries that Wall Street was not willing to invest in, that now because of Obama's promoting those businesses through federal agencies and through provisions in his economic recovery bill, uh, you know, those are totally catalyzed industries now. Um, so, so I think it's highly subjective when you talk about, you know, did change occur? Um, I'd add one other note to that, uh, and without getting into nuances of whether, you know, the, the administration's attempts at economic recovery were correct or not. I mean, clearly the markets are strong now, so, you know, what they did made sense, but also the wealth isn't being shared and that's you know that's a that's going to run into a major global global crisis very soon, uh, but it, it is interesting to consider 
um, the things that aren't that we don't see today. I think one person once described it as, you know, you never drive through a neighborhood and see signs that talk about cats that aren't missing, right? Um, what would the country have been in 2009 had McCain taken office, and would he have made the right decisions, and would he have gotten us out of uh, an economic uh, recession, or would he have made it into a Great Depression? I mean, these are the things we will never know, and, and it's worth thinking about. When we finish the book, what do you want us to think of? Well, I suppose going back to, to, to what I said before, it kind of works on a couple of levels. I think, especially this coming from someone who was the background of pop culture reporting, um, you know, if you are just now, I mean, just now, after Trump's election, you find yourself uh, consumed by the American crisis and watching democracy getting shredded up by this authoritarian regime, and you feel that the bourgeois privilege of not having to pay attention to politics in America is now gone, and you need to play catch-up. I think this book will do that for you in a very breezy way. I do think of it in that way, that it's a primer for like all of the major narratives from the last decade. Um, on another level, though, it does work uh, for the nerds, too. I mean, you do get to get inside the bunker and kind of catch nuances that maybe weren't reported before on, uh, on steps that were taken uh, for certain policies. And so overall, you step back from all of that, from that giant pitch I just gave you, um, you step back from all of that, and, and I think it helps you have, you know, just a more circumspect view of what the Obama presidency did right, did wrong, uh, and, you know, you can come talk to me and we can uh, figure out together what drives us crazy the most, depending on the day. And to end our time together with Ryan Abrams, we have a caller. Let's say good morning to Lenny from Lyon, from Millville. Good morning, Lenny. Morning. I need you to be brief. Go ahead, Lenny. I just want to know, uh, like, week in and week out, why is it always anti-Trump? You never have a pro-Trump on here discussing anything? Because I can't find one, Lenny. Help you can't me. find one. I can't find one who wants, is willing to come on and talk. I got people who come out who will call me up or email me and have some pro-Trump things to say. But when I invite them to come on the air, they don't want to play. Well, I, I would be happy you. to. All right, well, how about, um, like, Real quick on gun control. I heard him talking about gun control. Okay. Like sure. Like what would like what what would be the way to go about that? Because I mean, taking guns away from the good guys, it's never going to get off of the underground. There's always going to be guns. And no one kind of like you know the prohibition on alcohol, anything else. Like you can take the guns away from the good guys, make it harder for them to get, but it's always going to be around. Well, this is probably true, Lenny, but at the same time, I don't think Obama wanted to take them from the good guys. Rather, he wanted to do to have a sensible approach where people who shouldn't have them, criminals, domestic violence offenders, people with mental health issues, and how many guns does someone need? I mean, people who right. have 10, 15, 20 guns, I got a question about that. How many, how many can you shoot at once? 
Um, I well, think I that's. I appreciate you taking my call. Maybe try to find some pro Trumpers to get on the show. I'd love to. I'd nice. love to. Thank you. you. You take care. All right. And I'd like to say thank you to Brian Abrams for joining us this morning. Thank you, Brian. Thank you for having me, Peter. It's been my pleasure. And it's been conversation here on 94 WIP. My name's Peter Solomon. Stay tuned for WIP Sunday. If you can't, nothing left to say, but see you soon. Good morning, and it's time to ease on into WIP Sunday here on 94 WIPL Sports Radio. My name's Peter Solomon. It promises to be a sunny, warm, humid WIP day. So no matter where you go, stay cool and take 94 WIP with you. Always good conversation no matter where you go. If you're looking for something to read, and that final Labor Day weekend jaunt you're going to take, have I got one for you. When we come back in just a bit, we'll welcome author Christine Bray, her new book, Eight Goodbyes. Eight Goodbyes, she answers a question, among other things, can a woman have it all? We'll do this and more when we come back here on 94 WIP. The WIP Times 701. And we're back. And if you're looking for a good beach read for this final Labor Day weekend coming up, or... Just something to read no matter when you get to it. I'm pleased to welcome here author Christine Bray, her new book, Eight Goodbyes. Good morning, Christine Bray. Hi, good morning. How do you describe what you write? Um, I'm a women's uh, literature romance author. Okay. When you say women in romance, I can hear all the men going, oh, yuck. What do you want to say to them? Well, it's, a, it's I really write about women's journeys, and um, it centers around romance. So they shouldn't be saying yuck because there's big involvement in these books. <laughs> okay. And you're interesting to me, Christine, because writing is not your full-time job. No, it isn't. Tell me about the rest of your life. Well, I'm, I'm a mother. I'm a wife. Um, and I, I'm a senior executive at, a, a, at an ad- advertising agency. So I've got a pretty hectic life. How do you have the time to write? I mean, motherhood, how old are your kids? They're grown now. Okay. Um, they're in their 20s, and I have one who's a senior in high school. Well, senior in high school, let alone those in their 20s, take time. You have a husband that you have to worry about, and you have this job, which is probably very demanding. Yes, it is. How do you it make, is. How, how so, do you, how do you make time? I think when you, you really want something or when you really enjoy doing something, I think you find the time. Late at night or first thing in the morning? Late at night. You must be one of those remarkable people who can get by on only a few hours sleep. <laughs> yeah, actually I do. And, you know, um, I think I have the advantage of traveling a lot for work. So I do, you know, I'm able to squeeze in time when I'm traveling on the plane or in a hotel room or, you know, late at night when, you know, I'm just trying to wind down from work. So I think I'm pretty lucky that way. Okay. And when you write, does your background in advertising influence your writing? And the reason I'm asking is... No, not at all, actually. But you're developing a product that you want to see people buy. Does that influence how you write and what you write? No, I, not at all, really. I mean, I, I've been pretty good at actually separating both. And when I write, it's I write because I write. I write because thoughts just bombard my head and, you know, I've got char- characters speaking to me. Um, 
And so, I mean, I think it's really super separate. I've, I've never even considered it that way. All right. Tell me without, you know, names and dates changed to protect the guilty and giving away too much. Tell me about what goes on in Eight Goodbyes. Eight Goodbyes is a story about two people with very different priorities. And um, they meet one day in an airport and they decide to just meet in different places of the world. And then they fall in love. It's a natural progression. Um, it's a friendship that's built. And then things happen, obviously, that get in the way of their being together. Autobiographical? Pardon? Is it autobiographical? Uh, no. No, well, it's not autobiographical, but I tell you, I travel a lot for work, and I wanted to take the reader in a journey with me. So it's a lot of places I've visited. Um, actually, it's, you know, it's great because it's like they fall in love with the backdrop of the entire world. So. Okay. Um, but not how you met the mister. <laughs> no, no. All right. What gets in the way? Because I've always heard, and you read in the ladies' magazine, certainly, like attracts like, and that's what you build a relationship on. You're saying something different. There's so many things that get in the way. You know, it could be wrong timing. It could be um, events around you that happen. It could be uh, people in your life um, that decide, you know, <laughs> that it's not the right time for you to be in, in a relationship or pursuing something that you want or who, someone you love. There's so many things that get in the way. It's always, you know, it's life. All right. Um, what kind of things get in the way of your heroine? Tessa. Well, priorities. Um, you know, I write about a very strong woman who has a direction in life and who has priorities. And, you know, when you meet later on in life, you know, you've got everything set. And so, you know, you, you try to think, you know, are you ready for this or do you even have room for it in your life? Yeah. But hasn't your heroine named Tessa, by the way, hasn't she been told you can have it all or hasn't she? I don't think she was brought up that way. I think she was, she always thought that she could have it all. Um, again, just wrong timing probably. At the peak of her career, she meets someone, and I don't know if she's ready to give it up. Everything in life is, is indeed timing, certainly. Um, <laughs> yes. How about the mister in Tessa's life? Um, well, he's... Um, He's got priorities, too, and he is just basically, you know, moving along life, succeeding in everything he's doing. And, again, they meet at the wrong time. But the thing, the different thing about him as a man is he's very transparent about his feelings and, he's, you know, he's persistent, he's resilient. Um, I've met many men who are like that, um, my husband particularly, who just, it never gave up when he was pursuing me. And even now in our marriage, we've been married for 30 years. And he's basically, you know, with all the traveling and all the work I do, he's he's the stable one. He's the one at home with the kids. And he's the one who reminds me all the time that, you know, I've got something to come home to. Like, love certainly is grand in that respect. Um, when you, it is. When you love someone, you're willing to make sacrifices for them. Right. Right. Well, then tell me about um, the Mr. Inika Bice. Um, Well, uh, Simon is um, the hero or, you know, 
the main character, and he is someone who is just really, really determined to get what he wants. And so, you know, one of them is Tessa. So he decides to follow her around the world um, when she can have time for him, when she can see him. It's so it's very it's not very characteristic of you know someone like that. But again, love is love. Um, you know, it's, there's always one in the. I think there's always one in the party of two that tries harder and that loves more, um, and then it kind of evens out in the end. So, well, it's also been said that men know a lot quicker that the woman is the right one than the women do. Know that the man is the right one. Yeah, isn't that funny? Because they say when you're growing up, they say the men mature later than the women, <laughs> and then it just kind of flips around, and you know, yeah, I've heard that before. <laughs> Uh, this is not your first book, is it? No, it isn't. No, it isn't. What led you to write? I mean, here you are busy in advertising, busy with the family. You juggle numbers for the ad agency, as I understand it. Um, it's I do. Um, well, you know, uh, something happened to me. I had a big loss. I lost my mother about six years ago, and I wanted to write about the, that relationship. So I, I just wrote words. I put pen to paper. Um, I self-published my first book. And um, I really didn't know what would happen. I really just had to get the words out. And, you know, people started contacting me, um, set up a fan page on Facebook, wanted me to write a second book because they didn't feel like they had closure. And so I wrote the second, um, and then I wrote the third and the fourth, and here we now on the fifth book. So it's kind of just happened that way. But how did you find the courage, if you will, to do something with that first book. I mean, a lot of people have a book in the drawer in the desk, but not a whole lot of people get it published. Yeah, that's a good question. I haven't thought of it that way before. I, you know, I, I, I just didn't think, I guess, I just didn't think about it too much. You know, I, I didn't really have a concept about what self-publishing meant other than, you know, write a book, get it edited, and put it on Amazon. And I, you know, I'm... Up to now, I don't check my book sales, never. So I don't write for different reasons. I write for I write for myself, and I did that with the first book, and I did that with the second and the third, fourth, fifth. Um, I just basically wanted to get something on paper, and the courage, it's hard. I mean, it's putting yourself out there, um, even with my family, because the first was quite autobiographical, and I had to come out to my family like two years later. I didn't even do it right away. It takes a lot of courage, um, but I think at the end of the day, you own what you do and you own your words. So I just, you know, I just think about it that way. I've talked to a lot of authors and say writing usually goes one of two ways. It's either very easy or it's opening a vein and bleeding on a page. Which is it for you? It's opening a vein, <laughs> bleeding on a page. Uh, my books are about my journeys in my life. So it's about um, a young girl growing up, and then it's about midlife crisis, and then it's about acceptance of the things in my life. Um, so it's got a little bit of me in it. and it, Because it's not real if I don't write about what I'm going through because I want the emotions to come through the pages. Now, you mentioned you self-published. That had to be expensive. Self-publishing, um, actually, was quite affordable at that time. That was, like, 2013. Um, you know, 
I, again, I didn't really know what I was doing. I met a couple authors in this uh, book signing in Chicago, and, you know, I followed what they did. They had um, a network of, you know, editors and book cover creators, formatters. I went with them. Um, it's tedious. It's very tedious. And the editing process is something you take for granted. When you, when you get traditionally published, you realize you probably didn't edit enough <laughs> when you self-published your book. <laughs> So um, I, I don't think it's that expensive. I think it's more time-consuming than anything. Um, you know, expensive comes when you're trying to market and publicize your book, and I didn't do any of that at that point. But yet you still sold it. Yeah. I so, uh, Yeah. I, I, you know, it was – I mean, people just picked it up and, and loved it. So, you know, and their reviews came out pretty well. So I, I – you know, I, I just really closed my eyes and just pressed, you know, send and publish, and, you know, off I went. And you're listening to WIP Sunday here on 94 WIP All Sports Radio. My name's Peter Solomon. We're having a segment on beach reading, something good to read while you're on vacation or for a cold fall night as you're cuddled up on a chair under a quilt. We're talking with author Christine Bray, her new book, Eight goodbyes, and we'll be back after these messages here on 94WIP, WIP time, 7.15. And we're back, and it's WIP Sunday. My name's Peter Solomon. We've got a good read for you, whether it's on the beach, in the living room, or in bed late at night. That book, Eight Goodbyes, by author Christine Bray. My name's Peter Solomon. Now, Christine... What's in the book for men? Is there anything, or should we just leave it on the wife's night table where it should, where it is? <laughs> you know, actually, I've had a few men read it already. Um, what's in the book is that it's 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 you know it's the travel, um, the travel, the relationship building. Um, it's a lot about the main male character. Actually, it's not even about the woman mostly. So you know, men are going to get a lot out of just seeing themselves in this book. Um, it's written from a male's point of view. So I've attempted to do that, and it's set against, again, the backdrop of the world. So there's a lot of um, really great places that these two meet in. How does a woman like you get into the male point of view? How do you get into a man's head? I don't know. I just do. (laughs) Maybe, I, you know, having been married for so long and, you know, working with, you know, a lot of men in in this industry, um, having sons, it's pretty easy. Okay. Romance novels, people tend to think, have sex. And some romance novels have what's been termed purple prose, throbbing manhoods and heaving bosoms. Do you have any of that? It's a romance book, so it is a little sexy, but no, nothing like that, nothing like that description at all. Um, You know, I come from corporate America, too, so I know the stigma that there is against, um, you know, romance novels. So I... I try to I play it down, and I don't really give in to that wave. So it's it's not it's not at all like that. <laughs> Ever though, think about writing in another genre. Yes, actually, um, but I think I think that'll be a while. Um, it's been really tough um, keeping these two things together and separate. Actually, my work and my and my writing, and you know, with my career just 
kind of getting really crazy these days. I, I you know, I'm going to try to slow down a little bit. I'll keep writing. I'll keep blogging, um, but not going to be as quickly as I, I cranked out those other books. Now, you just said something that I want to get back to, and that is having it all, balancing two different kinds of careers. Um, how do you manage that? that again, in, you know, up to bed, up late at night writing and crawling into bed half dead probably. Then you got to get up again and do it all over again. Why? I think, you know, people ask me that all the time. I, I, I think, again, I, ju- I just do it. Um, you know, when your thoughts come into your head, when your creative, um, when your creativity just, just hits you, you basically just let it take you where it takes you, which is, you know, up late at night, um, you know, writing whenever you can, um, punching things on your phone, um, you know, even during a meeting. You just have to learn to separate the two. It's really been tough in the sense that this job has is really hectic, and it's taken a lot out of my, you know, my time and my efforts. Um, it's it's my number one love, and I think once you accept that you're going to be flying by the seat of your fat pants and you just really have to know, accept the fact that sometimes you're not going to be doing everything 100%, you know, at the 100% best that you can, um, although you try and give 100% always, um, you, you'll, you'll, you'll adapt to it, I think. Are you able to plan, though? Are you able to plan? Well, tonight I'm going to have some writing time, and this is how I'm going to do it. Because there's an old saying, man plans and God laughs. Yeah, my my life is just one big plan. <laughs> you know, even when I was bringing up the kids, it was like, what time do I do this? I do this. I do this. Where do I, where am I this time? Where do I go? Um, you know, it's a thousand words, and if I write, I sit down. I have to put in at least a thousand words. Um, you know, if I'm out in a late night meeting, I have to accept the fact I can't write that day or that night. Everything is to a schedule. Um, I also, you know, I I take the 6.15 a.m. train because I commute from a suburb um, all the way to Chicago. So, you know, I've got that train time as well. So different opportunities to just do what I need to do. And how about when husband says, sweetie, come here, please. (laughs) You know, I found a trick to that. I have a laptop. I sit on the couch next to him while he's watching whatever he's watching, his Netflix, his Bears football. Um, And the fact that I'm just sitting right there, um, you know, comforts him. Just, you know, that he sees me. I don't have to be 100% engaged in everything that he's watching or talking about. But I'm there, and I'm there for the kids as well. And he knows your writing makes you happy, and that's important. Yeah, I think he knows how important it is to me. What would you do if we took away your computer, though? Would you still write? Yeah, I have a, a notebook. Um, yeah, uh, a pen and notebook that I have in my bag every day. And I, I mean, I'm kind of old school still. I like seeing my, you know, my writing on a piece of paper. Was writing something you always wanted to do, or I mean, here you are being a finance person in the advertising agency. You probably didn't hear about either job a career day in high school. No, um, you know, I am. Um, I, I wrote as, as a young, you know, as a young child, and in my teenage years, I used to write poetry, and I just wrote, but I really never, ever imagined I would be writing a book. 
So I just, I never, I never thought that I would. But yet you did. Yes, I, yes, I did. And I guess that's what I want people to take away, is that it's really never too late. You know, I did that almost um, towards my 50th birthday. So. And if people told you you can't write anymore, not, not just take away your computer, but writing is forbidden, what would you do? I don't know what I would do. I mean, that's my sanity. That's my outlet. Um, that's all I like to do. I mean, so no, I don't know what I would do. It would, first of all, it, then it, it would cut half of me because, you know, as I say, I know I keep both lights separate. Um, you know, I'm a career woman and I'm a writer, um, and I try to keep both separate, but those two halves are very important parts of myself, so. Yeah. Ever think about joining the two halves together and write a romance novel set in the world of advertising? I wrote my third book was a book about not advertising, but about a really um, high-level career woman. Um, it was a book. It was a romance book, but it was set um, in corporate in corporate America. So I have I have tried to do that. I was pretty worried about writing that actually, <laughs> but um, no, it did well, and. You know, I write, I write from experience, so Eight Advice is about, you know, falling in love with the background of the world, and it's, it's about travel and seeing places, meeting people of different cultures. So I write from experience, so I don't think, I don't think that was off the table ever for me. Obviously, I, again, trying to keep the two things separate. You know, you don't want to be in a meeting, um, you know, trying to push policy and procedure, and people are looking at you saying, well, you know, she writes romance books. Although a lot of people know and a lot of people really support what I do, but I really try to keep it separate. What do, you, what do your kids think about your writing career and the books? You know, someone asked me that the other day, and I, uh, they're proud. They're proud of me. Um, when they were younger, they were a little squeamish because it was romance, obviously. Um, but they're proud of me in the sense that they know I've been able to do it all. So it's not really mostly my writing career. I think growing up, they've seen me as really just really trying as a, a person who moved to this country, you know, 23 years ago and and really started um, from the bottom and worked myself up. I think that's more how they recognize me. Ma'am, is that drive, though, of moving here 23 years ago? And I'm told you're from the Philippines originally. I am. I am, yes. Is that drive to be a success when you moved here what translates into your drive to be a success in the corporate world, in your marriage, and in your writing? Yeah. Actually, I think it is. I think, you know, you can't, you know, you can't have one without the other. I think I've always, you know, we moved here 23 years ago, and I've always had this plan. You know, people said, you know, first work for a public accounting firm and then three years later move to this. And I've always worked with a plan, as I said, and I, I did what I needed to do um, while bringing up the children. And I think that just translated into trying to do the best every, you know, in everything I did. You know, sometimes I get really obsessed with, you know, things just <laughs> because I want to do my best. And I think the children have seen that. So... When they say they're proud of me, I think they're proud of what I've done, not necessarily just of the author side of my life. Hmm. Now, your corporate life is about figures and numbers, something that has to be very exacting. Does that need to be exacting in the corporate world 
translate into your writing world, being precise, if you will? I think, I think it translates in the sense that I don't put out any work that I'm really not comfortable with. Um, I think it translates in that sense. But again, just the precision and just being precise about everything, um, it's so different. It, it doesn't really translate. I mean, when I'm writing, I'm just writing. I mean, there are times when, you know, I. Um, it's funny because, I, you know, I go to work every day. Um, I love to dress up. I, I, you know, I love to, I love shoes and clothes and all that, but when I'm in my writing kick, I mean, I there are days when I don't emerge from my office. I haven't, don't take a shower, <laughs> just have coffee, don't do anything, sit in my pajamas. So it's it's just very, it's quite the opposite of, of how I am every day in my everyday life. Well, maybe that's a key to your success, though, being more than one person. Yeah, maybe. I mean, I, I haven't thought of it that way, but you're right. I mean, maybe that's, you know, maybe we all have that. So I, maybe we all have two, three other, you know, different things inside of us or in our personalities that just come out. And I think that that's, that's the best way to describe it is just you just you just feed into, you know, the creativity that hits you. I think everyone is creative in their own way. Hmm. Are your books available outside of this country? Yes. Um, well, they they are through the you know the normal online retailers, but this book has also been um, it's also being published in the Philippines, obviously in my home country, and in Asia. What do you think? What's the reaction been in your home country? That's interesting. Our reaction's been great. Um, we were home two years ago to launch um, my books, and I mean the reception's been really really great. I mean you know they're proud. They're just really proud of having, you know, someone who's moved to this country really succeed. And, um, you know, I, I want to be a good influence and a good example to the people everywhere, to, to young women everywhere. And, I, you know, the Philippines is no exception. So, you know, being there, going to my old school, um, talking with people who I grew up with, um, you know, the reception's been really good. Do you ever get tired, though? <laughs> All the time. Yes. <laughs> tired. Tired. Um, physically tired, most of it. Um, I did have to take a step back in February. I was I was running too fast and just doing everything. I um, I, I I got sick. Um, you know, just normal flu, but it was a bad case of it. Um, so it's kind of taught me how to listen to myself more these days. That's that's certainly a good thing. Um, which is more important to you, though? A good review for one of your books or a royalty check? Oh, no doubt a good review. A good review. Why? You know, I think I'm luckier than... A lot of authors, this isn't my full-time gig. And so, you know, I, there's no dependence whatsoever on the financial implications of, of the books I write. None. And I'm, I'm lucky that way. Um, you know, as I said, you know, one day when I was talking to a publisher a couple of years ago, they asked me, you know, what are your sales like? And I'm like, I don't even know how to look it up. Teach me how to look up my sales. I don't know. 
Um, and I'm not, I'm, I'm saying this and I feel really blessed that this is the way it is because it takes a lot of the pressure away. So when you're saying, how do you do both things, maybe because there's not much pressure on the other side than there is on, on, on the main side. And you're listening to WIP Sunday here on 94WIP. My name's Peter Solomon. Anybody, probably, if they take the time and have the energy and write a book, whether it's just on paper, in a drawer, or whether you take that deep breath and take a risk and get it published, whether you get an agent or whether you self-publish. Christine Bray did that. She took the risk of self-publishing, and she's on her fourth novel now. Her fourth novel, Eight Goodbyes. Christine, stay with me. Got to run a few more commercials. We'll be back in just a bit. And we're back. What do you want people to get from the book? Um, Christine, what do you want them to think when they've closed the cover on Eight Goodbyes? Um, I think the main thing that I want people to get from the book is really um, hope and about the brevity of life and that we should take advantage of the time we have now, um, you know, to do everything we want to, to love who we want to, and um, to be whoever we want to. That isn't always easy, though, is it? No. No, it isn't. Um, Everything, I think, in life takes courage. So I think, you know, it's just one of these things that you just have to, to go and do. It's easy to say, but when you're there, you'll know. Where do you think your courage came from? I think I think my courage just came from, you know, just my experiences in life. Um, you know, starting from when I was very young, um, being a child of divorced parents maybe, um, moving to another country, trying to bring up two young children, um, having to start from scratch. All those things I think have figured into um, the person I turned out to be. One thing intrigues me. Um, Christine, and that is titles. What did the eight goodbyes, where does the title eight goodbyes come from? I was actually listening to a song called 10 goodbyes. (laughs) And um, I wanted to write a story about two people who met in different parts of the world. And I don't know, I mean, this is aging me so much, but it was more in the, in in the sense of um, same time next year, that old movie um, about two people meeting in different parts of the world, and I thought, you know what, that would be great, but let's focus on on the goodbyes that the couple say to each other, and so that's how I came up with it. And um, there's eight places that they meet, so it's eight goodbyes. They say goodbye, but they come back again. Mm-hmm. Is that the most? Go every ahead. goodbye gets more difficult, so it's the progression of a relationship. But love sees them through, doesn't it? Pardon? Love sees them through. Yes. Yes. But love also changes, don't you think? I mean, when you're first together, it's hot and heavy. But when you've been together for a long time, it's something very different. Yes, definitely. Um, You know, it, it progresses because you progress as a person and you never stop changing. So you have to have that love all the way as you guys change and grow. Um, You know, and there's a lot of sad stories about people outgrowing each other. And, you know, I think that you have to be cognizant of the fact that 
you know, your partner or your loved one is continuously growing, and you have to be doing the same thing, you know, not in the same pace maybe, but you have to recognize the fact that it's it's ever-changing. I mean, having been married for 30 years, I'm probably, you know, so different from the woman that my husband married 30 years ago. But is that a good thing or not? I hope it's a good thing. He's still here. Well, but <laughs> so I hope it's a good thing. Is he a different man than you married 30 years ago? Uh, yeah, I do, actually. I mean, not not different in essence. I mean, he's still the same person, you know, as a person and his beliefs and, you know, um, his core. But, yeah, we've we've both changed. Um, we've both changed and we've both, you know, gone through things in our relationship where, you know, I've said I'm changing, you know, you know, where, you know, you've got to change right along with me or you, you know, got to keep up or, you know, both sides have said that and we've kind of, you know, managed to, to do that because, because we love each other. Well, there's an old saying, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. And that sounds like um, what you're talking about. Right. Right. Exactly. From your own perspective of love in your own life, in the life of your characters in your book, how do you help your kids understand that? How do you help them look for love in their life? Well, my kids are undergoing that now. So, you know, they're in their 20s. You know, they've had their first love. They've cried over their first love. Um, You know, I don't really give much advice because all I want to do is to be there for them. Um, I have a daughter, um, and, you know, it's different, and I have a son, too, so it's different. when a boy goes through something like that, from when a girl goes through something like that. And um, the most important thing is that I'm there for them. But I think, you know, again, I've been so blessed in my life that I think they've all, they also see the relationship between myself and their father, and I think they emulate that. So I think they know that there is such a thing as, you know, being your own person, not getting lost in another person. You know, young people tend to make a relationship their be-all and end-all I've gone through that. You've gone through that. My kids have gone through that, you know, and it's the end of the world when things like that happen. But I think they see that you could be your own person. Um, You know, there are times when I travel so much, I'm gone. Um, When I go internationally for work, I'm gone a whole week or, you know, I'll extend. I'm gone for a couple weeks, but they see that I always come home. They see that I come to a stable home and a stable relationship, and I think think they, they realize that. You know, whether they've broken up, they're heartbroken or what, at this point in time, they see that it's possible um, this longe- you know, there's longevity in the relationship. I mean, the kids are growing up in an age of social media and whatnot where everything is temporary. So, you know, I'm glad that they have something that grounds them. Okay. Um, speaking of multimedia kinds of things, um, your book is on a printed page. What do you think about e-readers? Can we find eight mo- goodbyes for our e-reader? Oh, yes. It's available on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, all the platforms, um, different platforms that you have for Kobo, for Kindle. It's available um, on ebook. Well, what do you, though, as the writer, think? If oh, someone, if, I, <clears throat> I have a Kindle. That's like my left limb. So <laughs> I travel with it, go on the train with it, you know, every day, um, so I, I actually, it took me a while, I have to tell you, but it's so much more convenient and there's, you know, 
I have a collection of books, and but it doesn't it doesn't add to like a whole stack of books that's laying somewhere around the house. So I love the e-reader. Actually, I mean, I'm a big proponent of it. Interesting. Okay. Um, what's next? You have another novel you're working on? Yes. Um, I am. I did sign with um, the same publisher and the same publisher also in Asia for another book um, to release in 2019. So right now we're in second draft edits, which is probably the most um, tedious and annoying process. Um, but um, it's slated to come out in 2019. It's, it's, it's going to be great. It's going to be a really different story. What advice do you have for first-time writers who may have a book in the computer or a manuscript in the drawer? What do you want to tell them? I think it's everyone's personal choice and whether they want that manuscript to remain in the drawer. But I would say that, you know, life is all about living and just, you know, jump, closing your eyes and jumping in. And so I think, I think if they want, you know, if they want to share their words with the world, you know, just do it. I mean, just be fearless and do it. And at the end of the day, own your words like you own everything else in your life and, you know, stand up for them. You know, writing a book is scary and it's putting yourself out there. Um, it's reading bad reviews but also reading good reviews. It's, um, you know, not making the top 100, but it's also making the top 100 in a reader's eyes. So, you know, it's, it's, it's both good and wonderful and scary, but if you have something that you think people will really relate to, I think it's worth it. Besides, you took all the time to write. Might as well, you know, share it. Absolutely. Um, given the themes of your books, any nibbles from Hollywood for either the big or small screen? Yeah, um... You mean if I want them to be in the big screen? Well, but, okay, do you want them to be translated into film for television or for the big screen? And has anyone offered to do that yet? Yeah, the, I actually had a wonderful experience with that. The fourth book in This Life was optioned for film. Um, you know, it was a very, it was a funny story of how, how that came to be, and I don't know if we have time to talk about it right now, but... Um, you know, somebody had, an actor just reached out to me. He had picked up the book in the gym and read it and reached out to me right away and wanted to option um, the book for film. Um, Eight Goodbyes, because of its theme of travel um, and the way that they think it's going to be probably cinematic, they're also pitching it for production. Um, so, yeah, there's nothing just more, you know, I don't know, more exciting, more heart-rendering than knowing that, you know, people are interested in watching your book, actually watching the book on the big screen. Do you believe people are still interested in books? I mean, with, oh, with the... Yeah, you should see the world I live in, my everyday world with book readers. Yes. Yes. It's alive and well. There's a lot of bookstores are complaining, nobody's buying, what are we going to do? I know, and I feel bad about that. Um, you know, it's a lot of the Amazon wave, obviously. Amazon has taken over everything in our lives. But, um, yeah, 
I mean, if you could see the groups I'm in, the reader groups that I'm in every day, the people that I interact with. Um, I have a group called Brace Butterflies. Um, you know, it's growing every day. It's a Facebook group. They're wonderful, wonderful group of people. And, gosh, they read every single day. It's amazing. Do you have a website, Christine Bray? I do. It's really easy. It's christinebray.com. Christinebray.com to find out more about the lady and her novels as well. Have I missed anything? Anything you want to say? No, actually, I really enjoyed this conversation, Phil. Thank you. It's been my pleasure. And I want to say thank you to Christine Bray for joining us here this morning. Her new book, Eight Goodbyes. She took a risk, and it's paying off. Thank you, Christine. Thank you so much for having me. You're welcome. And you've been listening to WIP Sunday here on 94 WIP. My name's Peter Solomon. We'll be back in just a bit. And we're back, and it's another edition of WIP Sunday here on 94 WIP All Sports Radio. My name's Peter Solomon. I want to take note one last time of the passing of John McCain, senator from Arizona for a lot of years, presidential candidate. Whether you agree with his politics or not, he was a voice of sanity in the Senate for people to try and find the common ground, something a lot of people don't talk about, something a lot of people can't accomplish. They talk about the left to meet the right. He worked for that as a goal. He stood for a lot of things I believe in. He stood for some things I don't believe in. Um, He will be missed by his family, by his friends, by the people of Arizona, and by the people, a lot of people in this country as well. Rest in peace, John McCain. You served well. You deserve that rest now. Stay tuned for WI. Stay tuned for them. Stay tuned for Sports Talk with Sunny Hill. Always interesting and provocative discussion in the living room. Your opinions, Sunny's reactions. I know I'll be listening. Thank you to Phil Jackson, this morning's producer. Couldn't do it without you. As well as to Ann Tidman Solomon, my dear wife and associate producer. Uh, you're both integral to the operation, and you helped me make it happen. To those folks who are concerned that I may have an anti-Trump bias, I would love to find someone who believes in Donald Trump, who is willing to come on the air with me and talk about Donald Trump, what he's accomplished, where he stands on various things. A lot of people out there want to talk anti-Trump. I'm just as happy to talk pro-Trump. So if you want to talk pro-Trump, give me a call here at the station or... You can email me at peter.solomon, S-O-L-O-M-O-N, at hotmail.com and tell me what you think. Because um, if you've got something to say good about Donald Trump, I'd love to put you on the air. Equal time and all that good stuff. And we want people to hear balanced opinions wherever possible. Because sometimes it's hard to find that balance. And finally, there's nothing left to say, but stay cool. It's going to be a hot week. See you soon.